Laura Johnston took her family to the NFL draft experience last night in the cold in the rain. Laura Johnston, you are a trooper. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer for a Friday, which is always a good day for a discussion. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon and Layla Tassi. Laura, I actually think you're out of your mind, but you're a trooper. <laughs> That's the only reason you think I'm out of my mind, though. <laughs> did you have fun? Yeah, I did. I, it was fun to see downtown, like, hopping again. And, you know, the cheeseheads on the Green Bay fans. It was mostly Browns fans, uh, a couple of Bengals thrown in. But it was good to see people out and about just being happy despite the rain and their ponchos. Um, you know, feel like downtown's coming back to life. Okay, well, that's what Frank Jackson said. This will kick it all off. We'll see if that's true. At least we'll get some pictures with sun rays in them today of the draft, which is what I think everybody had hoped for when this all started. Let's begin. What's the ambitious goal that the Browns, Harvard University's Proving Ground program and two state government departments announced Thursday? And what could it mean for education in the state? Laura Johnston, I was the moderator of this discussion. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I just can throw it back to you. But no, but I but it's a kind of <laughs> this is a big deal. And I don't think people understand what the Browns have started. So let's talk about it. This is a really big deal. So chronic absenteeism in Ohio schools averaged about 17% before the pandemic hit early last year. Obviously, the pandemic has brought a slew of other problems to education, but the state wants to cut that rate in half. So they talked about this yesterday at the Power of Sports Summit at the Progressive Field, which is part of the NFL draft festivities. It's going on today and tomorrow as well. A huge number of issues they're discussing, like gender equity in, in pro sports, LGBTQ rights, digital divide. And um, the idea is that they want kids to go to school because the more they go to school, the more likely they are to be successful. Um, Cleveland Metropolitan School District, um, the superintendent, Eric Gordon, was there for another panel. They have had absenteeism drop 21% in four years leading up to the pandemic. So they're proving that it could be done. And according to Proving Ground out of Harvard University, there's not a greater commitment in the nation that they know of, of that like Ohio has to really cut this down. Yeah, I, yeah what's, what's interesting here, and Dee Haslam tried to deflect this when I said it, the Browns started this. They went to Eric Gordon and said, what can we do? We want to help. We want it. We got a beat on education. And he said, we need people here. So can you help? So they used the power of the Browns brand. They realized that the kids uh, wouldn't come to school because they didn't have clean uniforms. So they started providing them uniforms and they've done a bunch of tactics and it's, and, and they made progress. And we wrote about this a couple of years ago. Since then, it's become this big statewide effort. There are districts across the state involved. So, so the, the State Department of Education has jumped into it. The State Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services has a huge commitment to it. And th there was a guy from the Western School District way down in Pike County. It's like 130 square miles. There's an Amish sect in the middle of it. There's almost no cellular service. He said it's a 95% poverty rate. So way down on the southern tip of the state, They've embraced this thing with the Browns. You know, this is Cincinnati Bengals territory. Um, and he talked about the power of the Browns brand with the students when they started to do this. And they're so they're th th this thing is statewide all of a sudden. And when they announced that they're going to try and cut this rate. And what is it? 10 days or 18 days. If you miss that many days, you're going to flunk. And that's what chronic absenteeism is. 
that they're going to cut that by 50%. That sounds really audacious. Mm -hmm. But the guy at Harvard said he helped work the goal. And while it is ambitious, he thinks it can be done. Everybody there said said they think so. So And they have yeah. some interesting ideas. Like, you know, obviously you want kids to come to school. You've got to work with families. But the idea that you don't send home threatening notes to parents saying your child is truant, you're going to be in trouble. You ask them for help. And this idea that elementary school teachers can just send home postcards, handwritten postcards, um, they, like to create like a more a nurturing environment and, and a team that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, it started with the postcard to the, to the parents saying your kid missed school. And the superintendent in, in East Cleveland said that they started looking at the words and by using the negative words, they thought that was bad. So they turned it around and, and started talking about missing lessons. And the guy in the Western school district said, <laughs> instead of saying they miss school, they're telling parents, your kid missed the lesson on how to add or or do, you know, complicated division uh, be, to show that there's substance what they're missing. And what was remarkable is that increased attendance by 7%, just the wow. simple postcard. So, I, look, it's all non-intuitive to me. I, you know, I, who would have thought uniforms would be the thing? But they listened to parents and they did it. So it's a big deal. Um, and it's cool that the Browns have started all that, even though D. Haslam was trying to make it sound like it's more of a collaborative. She did this. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Opportunity Carter becoming the new Chagrin Highlands, meaning is the vision for that grand economic development of the corridor collapsing into something much less desirable? Well, Tassi, this is predicated on the idea that the city wants to allow a asphalt and concrete plant <laughs> yeah. on the corridor, which immediately had us thinking, wow, if that destroys the vision, isn't that like Chagrin Highlands? Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. So uh, everyone knows Opportunity Corridor. It's that super expensive, ambitious three and a half mile stretch of road that's going to connect I-490 to, and 77 to University Circle. And the hope is supposed to be to attract more industry and jobs in the city, especially for people from underserved neighborhoods. And the vision originally included light industry, manufacturing, and, and there were even discussions of using it as as a food hub that would really capitalize on its location near Orlando Baking and Maselli Dairy Products and things like that. But so far, womp womp, <laughs> the, first, <laughs> the first two projects in the area have nothing to do with those goals. One of them is the, the police headquarters at East 79th Street in Grand and something called the Construction Opportunity Institute, which I guess would train young people for the trades, but would also, among other things, as you mentioned, Chris, bring that unsightly concrete and asphalt plant to the site. So uh, my colleague Eric Heisig wrote a great piece likening this feeling of disappointment to the feeling surrounding another hyped up project back in the 80s. And we're talking about Chagrin Highlands, a, a 630 acre site uh, owned by Cleveland that spans eastern suburban Beechwood, Highland Hills, Orange, and Warrensville, Cleveland officials in, in 88 uh, offered development rights for the land to a company called Figgy International. And the following year, the company signed a deal to build a corporate office park and move its headquarters there. The city and suburbs agreed to a, an income tax split, and Ohio spent a ton of money on highways and infrastructure 
everyone expected hundreds of high paying corporate jobs on a massive business park and the tax revenue that comes with all of that. But it just really fell apart. Figgy International changed its name and changed hands. The the ambitious plans kind of morphed into plans to build a large mall. And today it's retail stores and hotels and restaurants and and Eaton Corporation has an office there and and also Ahuja Medical Center uh, is there. But, you know, people are watching Opportunity Corridor take this similar turn toward toward, you know, projects that don't really meet the site's potential. And they're worried that it'll just end up being another project in Cleveland's history that costs a ton, but kind of results in mediocrity. Yeah, I was actually covering City Hall when Chagrin Highlands' vision fell apart. When I first moved here, that area where the Highlands are, there was nothing out there. You drive down 271 and it was it was nothing. And and before I got here, they had built this plan to make basically Triangle Park in North Carolina. And they had the land for it and it's beautiful. But back when I was covering City Hall, Richard Jacobs and Mike White, then the mayor, decided, okay, let's allow big box. And the suburbs were not happy about it because they had made this, like you said, the tax sharing deal. But since then, you drive down that road. Yeah, you're right. You have Eaton Corporation. You've got some medical offices that are more in the spirit of what they talked about. But it is nonstop shopping. And and mm-hmm. that Pinecrest Center in in the middle of it is is the monstrosity. It is nothing remotely close to what was envisioned and with what happened in the pandemic where people really learned to do mail order, who knows whether that stuff's all just going to become skeletal buildings now. So, so you would think that people here would learn from that and say, okay, let's not screw up again. But an asphalt plant being the first thing out of the box seems like we are wrecking the plan for that road. Right, right. And and also, you know, it's just so strange that uh, there's so much secrecy around the plans for Opportunity Corridor. Frank Jackson's administration isn't really talking about it. Uh, everyone's refusing to answer questions. It just seems like, you know, how come, why don't, why isn't there more of a public discussion right now at this stage of this project? Well, we're city council, right? I mean, yeah, right. okay, so the administration comes up with this plan, which d- does seem to defi- defy explanation. I, you know, I do want to say, every time we think that something that the administration is doing defies explanation, they eventually come out with something that makes you see a little bit better. I have a hard time understanding what that could be here. Asphalt plants stink to the high heavens. But where is city council? Right, right. <laughs> These are supposed to be the guardians of this controversial project. And, and all we've heard so far is the council Councilwoman for that area, Phyllis Cleveland, is going to sign off on it, which boggles yeah. the mind. And I know that the the asphalt plan that that's uh, headed to a committee, I think, and and we'll see how that discussion goes. But I'm also curious to see how Kevin Kelly will play this, given that he is, you know, vying for the job of mayor, and uh, you know, this will all be his issue to inherit. So. What what you know? What position will he take on on the asphalt plant? <laughs> yeah, if this becomes controversial, I would hope that the administration would leave this for the next the next people to do instead of right. ramming it through at the last hour before the administration leaves. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Did the fear of the coronavirus keep anyone from voting last November? And if so, how did that affect the turnout? Jane Cahoon, as Rich Exner always does, he found some interesting stories in the statistics. Yeah, and it's not as bad as you might think. The pandemic did keep some people away. An estimated 4% of registered voters nationally 
said they didn't take part in the 2020 election because of COVID-19 concerns. But the turnout for the election was higher than ever. This is all according to a survey that the Census Bureau does every other year on voting and registration, and that was released on Thursday. So Rich dove into it, as you said, and um, found that the 17 million additional voters last fall over 2016 marked the largest increase on on record from one presidential election to the next. Uh, Overall, 66.8% of America's voting age citizens voted last fall, according to this survey, and the 155 million participants is the highest ever. And it represented the, um, the percent voting represented the highest share since they reached 67.7% in 1992. In 2016, the, the turnout was 61.4%. So, um, you know, as I said, although 4% of the people said they didn't vote because of COVID-19 concerns, a much higher portion, 17.6%, said they stayed away because they they weren't interested in the election. And then they had other reasons like just being too busy or forgetting or not liking any of the candidates, which I guess you can <laughs> you can understand. So anyway, um, lots of interesting findings here. You know, women voting at a higher rate, older people voting at a higher rate, veterans voting at a higher rate, college graduates, et cetera. There's a lot in here that uh, you can find in Rich's, Rich's story. Yeah, I get the feeling that that people were voting in desperation, that lots of people were desperate to get rid of Donald Trump. Lots of people <laughs> were desperate to keep Donald Trump. And that right. caused this massive collision in the polls where where people just could not imagine living for four more years with or without him. I'm never going to understand the people that are voting with him because guy was a criminal who tried to overthrow the government in the end, but he still has his followers. You're Can I listening. jump in here? Oh, wait. No, oh, I'm I'm <laughs> I, I don't quite understand the contingent of people who said that they were too afraid to vote because you could vote by mail. I feel like that's a cop out. They're just lazy. You can. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry well, that offends any of lazy um, voters. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, uh, this survey found that voting by mail or other methods that where you could vote ahead of election day accounted for 69.4 percent wow. of all voters last fall, and that was up from 40.1 percent and 32.8 percent in the previous two presidential elections. So there were a lot of people who did take advantage of that. So 4% of people are both too lazy to vote and also embarrassed to admit that they just didn't <laughs> care enough to vote. Well, so. maybe they just <laughs> lost track of time and, uh, you know, they didn't get out there and vote early. And so then- but people voted. I mean, the, there's a good, this is a good news story, Layla. A lot more people <laughs> voted. It's not. Yeah, Layla, you're such a downer. Yeah, no, listen, Chris, your initial question was, did fear of the coronavirus keep anyone from voting? So uh, that's what I'm commenting on. These questions are just to spark discussion. It's not I know, and you've done it. About. Congratulations. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the message that Destination Cleveland is aiming at Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and even Columbus to get people who live in those cities to move here? Laura Johnson, I'm not sure the message is really that good. When I watched it after Susan Gleiser posted it, I thought it was kind of lackluster. But what's the strategy and what's the message? 
So the idea is to say there's no better place to call home. This ad is a 30-second placement. It's going to air on TV for 11 days in nine markets. It's spending 80 grand from Destination Cleveland. Um, not surprisingly, we're using a lot of sports language here. We're a city that's never defeated. You can measure our wins and passion and loyalty. It features, you know, the the top hits of Cleveland, the Museum of Art, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame flats, other other venues. I was surprised to see the mass vaccination center at the Wolstein Center uh, featured in that. So that's pretty new footage, but also have some old stuff like, remember those big bright plastic birds in public square? Those are featured. So, um, I mean, not the most exciting ad I've ever seen. I think the uh, airtime we got on ESPN last night for the drafts probably makes people think Cleveland looks cooler than that ad. Yeah, Joey Morona has a story up saying that Cleveland came across pretty spectacularly last night through the draft. I, I just, I thought that, it, and maybe it's just me, but I thought that the video it was just bland. It, it, you could have put it in any city in America and basically run the same thing. I, the, the images are fine, but it just did not seem to have that energy and power, which is surprising because Destination Cleveland has been pretty effective in its in its video messaging in recent years and i wonder if their if <laughs> their budget has been cut so badly by the pandemic that this is the best they can do well they are making a huge push to show cleveland on a world stage here um and susan glazer has a story that just went up this morning about the visitors like the tourism and travel professionals who came to Cleveland. And I, I love her lead that um, I didn't know there was a beach in Cleveland, which I love when people see Lake Erie for the first time and they expect to see the other side. So they are working really hard to get people to see Cleveland in a um, good light that they would want to move here, bring uh, travel and conventions here. So hopefully it works. Do you really want people to be promoting this who don't realize how big the lakes are? I mean, doesn't it kind of reflect <laughs> on, a bit on brain power? I mean, if you really think you're coming here and not find anyway, moving on, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Why did an appeals court throw out the assault and domestic violence convictions of an East Cleveland police officer who was featured on the serial podcast for a previous conviction? And will it have much of an effect on his prison term? Layla Atassi, this is an interesting case because it's a police officer who's accused of violence a couple of times now, and it looks like he's going to go free. Yeah, yeah. So listeners might remember this guy from the famous serial podcast. I think it was season four. Uh, that was all about the criminal justice system in Cuyahoga County. His name is Denane Davidson Dixon. He was an East Cleveland police officer when he assaulted a man who he had arrested and then tried to threaten him out of testifying against him in court. Dixon eventually pleaded guilty in 2017, and he served 18 months in prison for that. And then he was on probation from that case when police arrested him in this domestic violence incident that we're talking about here, he and his girlfriend had gotten into an argument after she came home from a day out with her friends. And to seek revenge, she unplugged the wireless internet in their house while he was watching TV. And then he followed her into the bedroom and punched her in the face. And it knocked her unconscious. It broke several bones in her face. She had to have a metal plate uh, installed in her face to repair her orbital bone below her eye socket. And he claimed that she had attacked him first and that he was just defending himself. And that's really the sticking point for the appellate court. The panel of judges ruled that the jury should have been instructed on self-defense, that they should have been told that, the, that Ohio law permits people to defend themselves if they feel that they're in danger. 
And uh, Judge Nancy First had denied that argument. And the jury convicted him and he was sentenced to 20 months in prison. Now the case is being sent back to first. It's it's unclear if that's for a new trial. A new trial, I, I think so, probably. But um, I mean, what's your take on uh, what's your impression well, of what, I, what's going to happen next? I mean, he's I, supposed to be out of prison soon anyway. I think like the end of May is the end of his his prison term. So if if they want to make sure he's never an officer again, they might retry him. What I, what boggles my mind about this is that this isn't rocket science. You covered courts, you know that there's pretty yep. standard jury instructions for charges and. So so it's not like it's a new idea that you're supposed to instruct the jury on self-defense. I mean, it's pretty, pretty automatic. So, so first mistake, which seems like a rookie mistake, and she's not a rookie judge, costs the taxpayers a bundle of money. Because if they do try them again, you've got to get the, the prosecutors back to work. You're going to have to inconvenience another jury unless it's a judge trial. I mean, it just I, it boggles my mind that a judge would make this kind of idiotic error that causes such a great inconvenience and possibly an, a, a miscarriage of justice. So mm -hmm. I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see if they try him again, because like you said, he's due out in three weeks anyway. He served most of his prison term. But could he be a police officer again if he's not convicted? Right, right. I mean, yeah, good questions. And and I think, uh, you know, uh, part of this is in the hands of of uh, prosecutor Mike O'Malley to decide if they're going to pursue a retrial. Yeah, I'm sure he's annoyed that he has to do this again. Mm -hmm. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the Ohio spring 2021 coronavirus surge officially over? Jane Cahoon, you had to take us through all of the bad news as the numbers were rocketing up this spring. So you get to bring the good news. For a change, huh? It is kind of looking that way. Uh, Ohio's two-week coronavirus case rate, that's the rate we've been watching each week, the one that Governor Mike DeWine's using to determine when to lift health orders. That has dropped sharply to 155.6 cases per 100,000 residents. His his goal is is a number of 50 there, but and we now have just about half of the state's counties remaining on this red alert in the advisory system uh, over concern about the spread of the virus. And that was all in the weekly update we got on Thursday. It this is the second straight week that that case rate has dropped. It was 200 uh, two weeks ago after going up for four straight weeks before that. And uh, so the rate was 185.8 last week. So that's a pretty significant drop. It's at its lowest point since the weekly update on March 23rd. And so, um, yeah, he, although I should note that uh, the governor said he, he might change that metric to one that's more focused on vaccinations. And vaccinations have been started on about half of Ohioans age 16 and up, the, um, which is the cutoff for, you know, when you're eligible. And um, on, the, on the red alert thing, 45 of the state's 88 counties are on this red alert. And that's the lowest number in months. Um, a week ago, there were 52 counties and Franklin was on purple alert. They're no longer on purple alert. Most of Northeast Ohio is still on red alert with the exception of Geauga County, which has been moved to the lower level of orange. And um, so, yeah, things so are going see, in the right direction. Yeah, we could see the end. I mean, with the number of people that are getting vaccinated, you can see it's kind of choking it. It'd be nice if more people got vaccinated. 50% is not enough. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it sounds like we might get to 60, but probably that's the upper limit because there are a lot of people that just don't want to get it or can't. 
You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Whatever happened to that huge Picasso exhibit we were supposed to see at the Cleveland Museum of Art before the pandemic caused delays? Is there anything else coming that should excite people? Laura Johnston, this is all based on a Steve Litt story that is kind of good news. It is good news. I mean, we still don't have Picasso coming. This is a blockbuster that was supposed to open last May, postponed until September, and now indefinitely um, because of, obviously, the coronavirus pandemic. But we are getting a really big show on Alberto Giacomi. Um, It's called Toward the Ultimate Figure, and it's the biggest solo show on a 20th century European modernist since the Picasso exhibits in 92 and 2001. So this is um, pretty exciting for people. It'll show 60 works by Giacometti and focus on the years of 1945 till his death in 1966. After this, it goes to Houston, Kansas City, and Mexico City. So hopefully people will get excited. I have never heard of this artist. I'm I'm not, I'm not the most artistically educated person, but hopefully people are excited. Yeah, Steve Litt's story didn't really say, he, he took it on faith that we'd all know who he was. He didn't really say <laughs> what he did. And I have to admit, I had to go look it up. But, um, and, and the Picasso exhibit still will come. That's the belief. That's the belief, right. And there are a bunch of other shows that uh, the Museum of Art announced this week, five big ones, and it's kind of showing its um, movement from once a conservative institution towards a greater emphasis on modern and contemporary art and on work by African-American artists. So we're getting new histories, new futures, picturing motherhood now, currents and constellations, black art and focus, and the new black vanguard, photography between art and fashion. So maybe if you're not into Alberto Giacometti, these ones sound more uh, palatable to you. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the unemployment crisis caused by the coronavirus in Ohio over? Jane Kuhn, I was surprised at how high the numbers still are compared to before the pandemic. Yeah, this isn't maybe quite as good news. It's not over. But, you know, just as we've seen improvement in the coronavirus case rate, we we have seen the number of new and ongoing unemployment claims going down. Uh, And we've seen fewer of them flagged for fraud, which seems to indicate that the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services is kind of getting a better handle on that persistent problem. But for the second straight week, fewer Ohioans filed continued unemployment benefits uh, than any week since the coronavirus crisis began more than a year ago. The new claims also reached like a month's long low. But here's the big however. Even with these improvements, both new and ongoing unemployment benefit claims still are far above what they were before the pandemic. So, um, you know, if you go back to like April 2019, we had like fewer than 16,000 new unemployment claims and a a little over 200,000. We are still above those numbers we had. 21,000 some new claims and then, um, you know, 242, over 242,000 ongoing ones. So we're still above those, above those numbers. The, uh, the thing that I'd love to see is a breakdown of what the classifications are because Laura Johnson and I were talking to Mara Zurich the other day and she said her grocery store had to close one day because there's not enough workers and we've all seen restaurants having trouble and Merwin's Wharf shut down I think last weekend because they can't right. find enough people. It's it's a constant theme is there's a bunch of people out there looking for 
employees, they can't find them. And so if the unemployment is high, it must be in specific sectors. It's certainly not going to be in the food service industry. I wonder if there's a way that the state could break that down so we get a better understanding of where where the deficiency is. Yeah. I, well, what do you think, Leila Tassi? Did we just assign <laughs> another story? Assign it. <laughs> I was waiting for that. I want someone on this side. Today, um. I like that you keep asking if Jane if something is over. Like, I feel like Jane needs to issue certificates, like officially coronavirus <laughs> over in Ohio, officially <laughs> unemployment. So you get, get to, we'll, we'll have those too. I love that idea. And officially, Jane's career that, that's coming up. <laughs> what, wait, 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 are you retiring, Jane? Say it isn't so. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What's the thinking behind planting a grove of trees to honor Ohioans who died from the coronavirus? And will there be a tree planted for each of the 19,000 plus people who have died so far? Leila Tassi, is this something that they did after 1918? What's the idea behind this? You know, I, uh, I'm not sure. Governor DeWine has, has chosen the Great Seal State Park in Chillicothe for the setting of this new this new grove. And on Friday, uh, which is Arbor Day, uh, 15 trees will be will be planted by survivors, families of Ohioans who died during the pandemic, healthcare workers and others, first responders. Um, and uh, they'll have a ceremony dedicating the grove. And this is the park that's that's uh, the one whose ridges and hills are depicted in the great seal of the state of Ohio, hence the name. So it's a very beautiful, uh, bucolic kind of setting for this. Uh, 15 trees seems a little, little, you know, lame to me, but (laughs) I mean, like, I don't know, maybe at least like a couple hundred trees, that would be really, uh, uh, you know, whatever. But, um, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a sweet, uh, gesture, I suppose. But, um, yeah, is there? Did well, they, I wonder did if people will go to... there to to you know people who've lost uh, relatives, family, friends to the coronavirus. I wonder if they'll make the trip there is uh, to to commemorate their loss. Yeah, I mean it's uh um I mean they chose a lovely setting for it, so I think uh, that's likely. I think honestly, I think they could have done better with the with the number of trees that are planted. <laughs> yeah, considering we've lost like more than nineteen thousand people, right? This yeah. is Jenkins. You could at least do one tree per thousand, right? They promised I mean, yes, a grove, right, not a right. forest, right? I guess. Yeah, I mean, well, maybe well, maybe the state budget got a little stretched to put, purchase some trees. I hope they're tall trees. You're listening <laughs> to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for another week of discussions. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And thanks to Laura, Jane, and Layla for the great discussion. We'll be back on Monday. 